Acts chapter 2, if you would turn there. If you need a Bible, it should be someone on the chairs in front of you. If you sit in the front row, you just got to bring your own. If you're, if you're borrowing a Bible, it's page 909. Uh, and if you are here regularly, you know we would encourage you to bring a, a notebook, a journal, or something that you would follow along in. Uh, if not, there is a note page in the chairs in front of you. And as Pastor Amaldi said at the end of the message, we do a takeaway. We just ask, uh, we share a takeaway with one another. And basically what that is, is what is one thing you heard today in the message that you want to apply to your life this week? It is a place for you to kind of capture how the message relates to you. It's a place for you to work with your kids and just ask them how the message relates to them. And so it's built in. So we'll do that at the end of the message. Can we start my timer, please? Because I'm going to struggle to get this done today anyway. So uh, Acts 2, we're picking up in the second chapter. We left off last week where the first church in Jerusalem watches Jesus ascend back to heaven. They go and they begin to meet together. There's about 120 of them. So it looks kind of like this, right? It's a, it's a church that we would say by, by modern times, we say a small church, right? Now, there's a lot of tiny churches across the nation. This is actually kind of medium-sized, but locally in Southern California, you can't, you know, I mean, you can't drive a block without seeing a megachurch. And so this feels like a small kind of church. And, and this, what I want you to hear, though, is this is what the first church looked like. Right, that it was, it was about 120 people gathered together in a room, praying and, and searching scripture and waiting on what Jesus said would come, that the Spirit would come and empower them to do what he had called them to do, which is to be his witnesses, to be the witness that he is alive and that to tell the world the gospel or the message that Jesus lived and died and rose again to reconcile a sinful humanity to a holy God and to share with him not just that he died, but that he is alive. We're going to see that that is an emphasis in the book of Acts. And so today we're going to look at these two scenes, if you will. Like last week we talked about what happened in the 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the spirit coming on the church, coming upon the church filling the church with power. What happened in those 10 days? Well, today we're going to, it all plays out really over one day. And there's these two scenes, what, what happens inside the church and then what happens right outside the gathered church. So here's a main idea that we'll put on the screen for you. Empowered for the mission. The Holy Spirit empowers the local church to proclaim the gospel so that those in the community may be transformed and converted to faith in Jesus. Right? Jesus said, wait here until my spirit comes upon you and with power, and then you'll be my witnesses. So we have what we need, the empowering of the spirit, and we have what we do with it. We become witnesses for Jesus. So the, the purpose for that is that people would come to know Jesus through us. Acts chapter 2, let's pick up in verse 1. It says, now when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. All right, so Passover is 50 days earlier than this. Passover is the first feast in the Jewish calendar year. Kind of a, not anything like New Year's Day, but kind of a, a first celebration, right? And so it's the first thing that happens in the Jewish festival or feast calendar, their worship calendar. So Passover celebrates when Israel was in Egypt, when the Hebrews were in Egypt, and death passed over them when God poured out plagues on Egypt 
and those who painted the blood on their doors, death passed over them, hence the name Passover, right? So Passover was this annual celebration remembering death passing over the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. As God delivers them, he tells them what to do, and then death strikes every other household in Egypt, and that's the catalyst where Egypt releases them and sends them off into the wilderness, okay, where they will end up hearing from God, getting the law, and eventually end up in their own land, right, as they follow along with God. So 50 days after that first Passover is where God meets with them on Mount Sinai. And he gives them the law, and he calls them to obedience to him. Now, Pentecost, Pente, like pentagram, like that's five, right? 50 is what it means, 50 days later. And what it is celebrating annually in the Jewish calendar is the first fruits of the harvest. So you come out of Passover, and you come into the harvest. That's where it lands on the, on the calendar, right? The seasons, And so what you get is this, here's what God has done to save you and called you to follow him. Now here's how God will provide for you if you live for him. You with me? All right. So 50 days apart, one really kind of we would say salvation and then provision. You with me? Right? He's calling them to remember how God has saved us and now trust in how God empowers us. And so the gospel kind of follows that. And that's why the first century church here is embedded on those two days. So Jesus dies on Passover. He gives his life for us, right? He does so to cover the sin and the the separation between us and God. He comes and pays our penalty because we are due a penalty for what we have done to disobey God. So he covers that penalty, takes our penalty, and he does so on Passover, so we look back at Egypt and, and Israel's deliverance from, from Egypt, and we understand that that was a physical Passover, a physical deliverance pointing forward to Christ, who is our spiritual deliverer. You follow? So there's this salvific message, this salvation gospel kind of thing, all the way back in the Exodus or in Passover in Egypt, that points forward to a spiritual fulfillment of that, that Christ does. That Jesus comes and lives, and then dies on a cross to have death, eternal death, spiritual death, pass over us. You with me? All right. So Jesus dies on Passover resurrects three days later alive. So Jesus raises from the grave, and that's what gives us new life, right? That he covers our sin with his death, but then he invites us into a new life in the resurrection. Okay, so Jesus resurrects, and then he spends time with the church on earth, and it says that he spends 40 days with them. And so really, if he's Passover resurrection, there's three days, then 40 more. It takes those, those, it's 43 days after, literally, after Passover, right? And so it's about a week later. We say 10 days later, a week later, depending on how you do your math, right? In other words, depending on where you calculate the resurrection, where Passover is in that, you get here. It's a week to 10 days later is Pentecost. So Jesus has ascended, and he said, wait here. Wait here until my spirit comes upon you. And so this 120 believers gathered together. Again, looks like a group about this size. They're gathered together. They're already believers in Jesus. They've seen him live. They've seen him die. They've seen him raised from the grave. But Jesus has more for them, right? Jesus has a calling for the church, for that church, for this church, for all churches. 
And he says, listen, wait here until my spirit comes upon you with power. Then you'll be my witnesses. So the, the mission is you're going to be a witness for, for him that he's alive, that he has reconciled a sinful humanity to a holy God, that, that he has been the bridge that brings us together, that he's done that, and that he's alive today. So that's the message. But we can't tell that message because that message sounds crazy, right? So there's a guy, he said he was going to die and then he was going to come back. And he did. And people are like thinking, hmm, okay, right? It's a crazy message, but, it, it, but it's true. But you can't just share that with human reasoning. You can't just reason from them because it says this and then this happened and so it must be true. It's not a, a human message, it's a gospel message. So the gospel message must be communicated in, in God's power. You see, I can't, no matter how compelling of an argument I might be able to make, I, I can't speak in such a way that changes your heart. Only God. So Passover, we see the gospel. Pentecost, 50 days later, after Passover, is where the Spirit comes and empowers the church for that message. What's our mission? To proclaim Jesus as alive, right? Which is really a, a summary of like the gospel itself. But we need to do it in the power of the Spirit. And so Romans 6 says this. Well, we have this on a slide. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If you're in Christ, not only has your old life been buried with Christ, with your sin and your brokenness, with all the junk that you bring to the table, that I bring to the table, but also we have been raised with Christ to be new, okay? Saved and called to something new. So salvation, Passover, now provision how God enables us to live and to live out specifically his calling on the church that's where we are in the story, okay? So let's read and start at verse 1 again. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, so it's 50 days later, they were all together in one place. What's the church doing? They're gathered together. What have we seen them do? Pray together, look at scripture together, gathered together. We lose sight of this today, how important it is that we gather together regularly, right? They gather together. When does Jesus meet with them? When they're gathered together, right? He didn't have to go looking for them. They were together. Church, literally, ecclesia, means assembly, the gathering of God's people, right? Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire, appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, this scene happens inside the church. What I mean is inside their gathered meeting, okay? Church isn't a building, it's a people, right? Church isn't a worship service, it's a people, a gathered people. And this happens inside their gathering. They're in a room, maybe like this, I don't know. They're gathered together, and it's Pentecost. It's now the next Jewish feast. It's so what we're learning is that God had put, put these in place, not just for Jewish physical meanings back here, but that would Christ would, that would give us more meaning to them. This death passed over physically and allowed them to exit their slavery in Egypt. 
where Jesus dies and covers our sin, death, spiritual death passes over us, and he calls us now to exit the slavery of our old life, right? You see the parallel. Now Pentecost is coming. The Holy Spirit has now entered into the church in a new way. Now we talk about the Spirit softening our heart and giving us spiritual life. We call it regeneration. We talked about that a little bit last week, right? So the Holy Spirit does something back here, does something different here. So the Holy Spirit has more than one job. God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, does particular things to especially the follower of Jesus. In this case, we're looking at the empowering to the ministry that Jesus has set them on. So they already believe, that's one work of the Holy Spirit, but now they're being empowered to do what Jesus has called them to. And so what we see is this, this kind of three things that happen inside this room. So the first one, the Holy Spirit comes audibly. There's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Okay. Second thing is the Holy Spirit comes visibly. There are like tongues of fire, right? If you're old enough like me, you remember many concerts like this with a lighter until it blew up in your hand, right? I know there's apps for that now. I get it. It's not as cool as the original lighter. It really isn't. Okay. But I have that image, right? Notice it's tongues of fire, right? Okay, the third thing, so it's audibly, visibly, and the Holy Spirit comes powerfully, and it says they speak in other tongues. Okay, so they begin to speak in something that is not natural and something that is foreign to them. So we have a sound, we have a visual, and we have this power, right? Now, I want to I look at that because about 125 years ago in Pasadena, people sat and looked at this verse and said, oh, I really want this, but misunderstood this, and it launched a whole series of things called Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches or all these things that were foreign to the church because they're foreign to Scripture. And they would look at this, and they're like, oh, we want to speak in different languages. Okay, so let's look at what this is. So the Spirit empowers the church empowers them to the ministry that Jesus has called them to, right? Wait here till the Holy Spirit fills you with power, then you'll be my witnesses. It's pretty clear what Jesus is doing. Let's look backwards in Scripture. So we have this. We'll put this on one slide. In Judges, it says the Spirit of the Lord was upon its upnail, and he judged Israel. So he would then discern true from false and judge Israel, right? He, he would speak to people, hear people, and lead Israel. Judges, by the way, are not good examples of good godly leaders, but God still used them. First Samuel, this is Saul, also an example of a king that is less than good. But it says the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he prophesied among them. Prophesy does not mean future telling. Prophesy means spoke God's truth with God's authority to God's people, typically, right? Sometimes to outside of God's people. But for the most part, it's God's word to God's people with God's authority. That's what the, to prophesy means right? He spoke to them in their context. The third thing, 2 Samuel, this is David. He is a much better example, still flawed, but a much better example. Says, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. You see a consistent theme here? You see the spirit of God and how it plays out in the person? You see this kind of the spirit empowers speech. It kind of lands itself in a, in a leadership role oftentimes, not always, but sometimes. But it this, the Spirit empowers the judges to speak, King Saul to speak, even David to speak and write Scripture. You see the connection? Let me give you another one in Acts 1. The next slide. In the thir- first book, O Theophilus, this was from last week, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So what empowering does Jesus have to give that commission or commands to the, to the apostles? I was hoping for a response. Anybody? The Holy Spirit. Note the consistency of what God the Holy Spirit has always done. Now, there's, there's more things. Don't get me wrong. We're not limiting the Holy Spirit to this. But what God has always done is empower people to speak on his behalf through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit, one of the things the Holy Spirit does to us, not just awakens our heart and gives us spiritual life, that's one thing, but another consistent, most common thing is empowers the follower of Jesus or in the Old Testament, the follower of God to speak something on behalf of God. You with me yet? All right. Holy Spirit empowers speech. That's the idea, right? So here's a, here's a, a, a slide for you. Empowered speech. All the prophets, judges, elders, even elders under Moses, like all the way back in Exodus, priests, kings, even Jesus himself spoke by or empowered by the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit empowers people to speak on God's behalf. Amen. Not trying to say that's the only thing the Holy Spirit does. I'm trying to say one key thing that the Holy Spirit does is empower people to speak on his behalf, right? Most of you know like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 about Scripture, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, right? Breathed out, that word spirit is in there, right? That God's Spirit superintends even the writing of Scripture, how God communicates to us. The Holy Spirit empowers speech so that God's Word can get out. Okay, let's back up. Chapter 4, I mean, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So if God has always empowered people to speak on his behalf, does it not make sense that when God's Spirit comes upon the church, they begin to speak? Okay. It's consistent with Scripture. So what does that look like? right? Now there's more here and there's going to be more story, but if we start out with the idea of, okay, we understand what the, what the Holy Spirit historically has done and it's been more selective in the Old Testament, maybe on a king, maybe on a prophet, maybe on an elder, but empowering them to speak on God's behalf. Now we look at this church of 120 people that are called to be Jesus' witnesses who speak on his behalf to tell others of what he has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, to reconcile a sinful humanity to a holy God, and that he is alive today. So to empower them to speak. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they begin to speak. Now here's what happens. It's like this, maybe. A group of people gathered together seeking Jesus, right? Together. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they all begin to speak, or at least it appears that all of them receive the Holy Spirit, and it looks like all of them begin to speak in other languages. Now, this group of people, unlike this group of people, because I know many of you were either not born here or were born in your first language as something else, right? You were born speaking Tagalog in the Philippines or, or Korean or Spanish or whatever, this is a group of people that's pretty homogenous. They're pretty the same, right? They're all raised in this area. They're not from far from here, and they all speak the same language. So now they're being enabled or empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak in other languages. Okay, before we, before we lose that, we just have to ask, okay, why? 
Verse 5, okay? Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, so visiting, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and were bewildered. Listen, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Okay, so the Holy Spirit empowers this church, and they begin to speak about God. They begin to proclaim the good things about God. We might say, proclaim the gospel. They begin to speak God's words with God's authority, right? And we'll see to whom in just a second here, but what we learn about them is that now at this particular time, because it's Pentecost, it is the second greatest feast in the Jewish calendar, So at this time, lots of Jews from every nation, it says, that doesn't mean that every nation had a representative, but it says from all over the place, are now dwelling or visiting Jerusalem. So lots of folks that don't speak their language are now in their city, and they're in their city to worship at the Feast of Pentecost, at the the temple in Jerusalem. And so here comes the Holy Spirit into this church. They all begin to speak but they all understand in their language, okay? Not like I can hear one guy, I think he speaks my language. Like they all hear them all speaking in their language. You with me? There's a bit of a miracle of speech and a bit of a miracle of hearing, right? You can kind of split the the miraculous because they're clearly speaking in other tongues, other languages, right? Note that tongue is used about fire, like the member of the body that creates speech is used as a shape, like the tongue of fire, but then in other tongues as well, right? So we see this, but they're speaking a language foreign to them, but everybody in the city is hearing them, but they're all understanding. See, that's the piece that the modern church, you might walk into a church and they'll, they'll do something that they call tongues, but no one understands them. Here, Everyone's doing it, and everybody's understanding them. It's amazing in that alone. As we see Acts progress, we're going to see that consistent theme. When someone is empowered in this way, people understand them. Okay? And that's key to understanding what does the Holy Spirit do here? How does it apply to us? So now we have all these people visiting Jerusalem... Because it's a, it's a, a feast, it's a gigantic holiday in the Jewish calendar. And so they're all in Jerusalem, but they speak different languages. But God has just now empowered this church, just as Jesus said, in order to be his witnesses, to take the message about Jesus out. But now there's a language barrier, but God has just overcome this. You there? Okay, let's keep going. So there's a, again, there's a speech and a hearing, right? Verse 6, let's reread that. And at the sound, the multitude, the, the crowds in Jerusalem came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, right? Each person, so everyone who is speaking is empowered by God to speak what we're just going to short form call the gospel, right? And everyone who is hearing is understanding them speak the gospel. The miracle is the church is empowered to do what Jesus called them to do, to be his witnesses, right? You follow this, it's not rocket science. It's not, it's amazing, but it's tracking. Like there's a theme that Jesus is doing here, that by the Spirit, what he called them to do, they're doing. Verse 7, they, this being the crowds, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? 
And how is it that we hear, listen to the clarity, that we hear each of us in his own native language? It's not even unclear that they're all understanding all of the church, right? Like it repeats itself, that each of us is hearing them speaking in our own language. But the person they might be talking to speaks a different language and yet is hearing them in their language. So this one over here is hearing them in Spanish. This one over here is hearing them in, in Korean. And this one in Tagalog and this one over here. And you just, they're all hearing in their own native language as God is using this church in a miraculous, empowering way. And they were amazed and astonished. Are not all these speaking Galileans? Aren't they all from here? How would they know what we speak, right? Verse 9, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, that's pretty far away, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome. That is all over what we would call Europe, Asian, Asia, and the continent of Africa. They're coming from three continents, at least. Both Jews and proselytes, so Jews that were born Jewish, proselytes, people that converted to following Judaism that were not born Jewish. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, so Greeks and Arabs, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Again, clarifying what they're hearing. That the crowds, thousands and thousands of people outside, are all hearing, all of them speak the mighty works of God, it says, right, really the gospel, the mighty works of God in their own native language. God is enabling this little church to take the message he's given them about Jesus and what Jesus has called them to, to be as witnesses, and he's enabling him, them to do that job. Yeah? Okay. Verse 12. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So it's clear what's happening, and they have questions. We would too, right? 2,000 years later, we still have questions, right? The crowd outside is hearing this, and it's like, what do we do with this? Like, what's going on? Because they're, they're comparing. Like, I hear them in this language, and you hear them in this language, and we're all hearing the same thing, but in our own native languages. What could possibly be going on? It says they're amazed, they're perplexed, they're confused, but they ask this question, what does it mean? But others, mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So some in the crowd go, oh, they're drunk. I'm not sure how drunk makes you speak fluently in another language. I can see how it makes you think you speak fluently in another language, but I'm not sure it actually enables you to achieve it. Oh, they're just drunk. I'm not sure that covers the answer. But this scene right here sets up the next scene. See, this, this scene that happens inside the church and, and is heard outside the church, it's, it's happening here and it's being heard in the, in the community around and they're, they're drawing to this and they're discussing this and they're, they're talking about it and they're hearing and they're asking and some are critical and some are interested and, and it's drawing this crowd together. So this scene sets up the next scene. Here we go, verse 14. But Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. 
roughly 9 a.m. A little early to be a little boozy, all right? So it's early. He says, it's not that, right? It's early. So he's going to now address the crowd. So he stands up with the 11, so him, the other apostles, including Matthias they brought on last week, right? Stands up with them, but Peter now begins to speak. So let's just kind of recap who's Peter, right? So Peter's clearly one of the closest disciples Jesus had, right? One of the closest friends Jesus had while he was alive. One of the 12, for sure. One of the inner three that seemed to have some special privileges, right? That seemed to get some definitely, they're they're in some special moments with Jesus that maybe others aren't. So Peter, James, and John, right? Peter, one of the closest disciples, students. But Peter's the one that really, for my money, makes us feel good about ourselves, right? Peter has highs, big successes. Peter has some epic failures, right? Sometimes right back to back, like he's on top of the world, then he's not. Like, okay, let's back up 50 days. Jesus, den- uh, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was crucified, on the night that he was betrayed, right? Denies him to at least one little girl and to the crowd here in Jerusalem, right? So many of the people that live in Jerusalem were there because they lived there. They were there for Passover. They were there. They were a part of the crowd that shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And that ultimately results in the crucifixion of Jesus. So they're still there because they live there. Others have joined the conversation. But it's to that crowd that is shouting, crucify him, that Peter actually denies Jesus. Again, and there's some other ones that he just denied him and, and his strength and character are not all there yet, right? So now, what do we see? Now we see Peter now empowered by the Holy Spirit to step up and proclaim Jesus to the very crowd that intimidated him before, right? Peter now empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's had a collection of highs and lows. He's been not super courageous and denied Jesus three times in one night. He's not a likely candidate to be the first one to preach the gospel to a hostile crowd, right? But what's changed is not Peter. What's changed is the Holy Spirit. That God has, through his spirit, empowered Peter to be different, right? Empowered him, not just to to be courageous, but we're going to see his words are different. If you know anything about Peter, you're just going to see how Peter's grown up a bit in this, matured in his faith. Verse 16, Peter says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your sons and, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So let's just pause mid-verse there for a second. So remember, prophets were empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak, right? Many of them wrote down what God said to speak. We call that scripture, right? So Peter says that God promised this would happen. God spoke through the prophets, empowered by the Spirit. That's how we get here, right? Hundreds of years earlier so that God can say, look, I said this, I did this, right? There's a major theme in the book of Acts, one that we did not cover last week, and it's promise fulfillment, right? God made a promise and then fulfilled it here. And it's that God said this ahead of time, making it impossible to overcome the hurdles of all that in order that you would know that this is clearly God, Like Jesus, before he was crucified, said, I will be crucified, buried, and I will return on the third day. 
anyone can say that, but it requires God to do that, to return from the grave alive, spend 40 days with the church proving you're alive, like he does to Thomas, like he says, touch my hands, right? See the scar on the side, right? To prove you're alive. So says he will do it and then does it, right? Promise fulfillment. So Peter is using that theme that he, God has promised, now God is fulfilling as proof, right? Let's back up to 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now he's going to quote Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy or speak on behalf of God. And I shall show wonders in the heavens and above, and the signs on earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood. There, before the day of the Lord comes, fast forwarding to the final day of the Lord, if you will, that great and magnificent day. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter now quotes a passage out of Joel, a minor prophet in the Old Testament that we covered over the summer that God promised that once Jesus had come, that God would pour out his spirit in a new way. Now, here's what's new. In the Old Testament, God would pour out his spirit on Moses. Then he tells Moses, I want you to gather 70 elders from among the people to help share the burden with you. And I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you, and I'm going to put it on the 70 elders, right? Then he goes to the judges, or before that, even to Aaron and his sons, the priests, and then to the judges, who are horrible leader, but, uh, leaders, but God still uses them. And then we go through that to the prophet, like Samuel, Nathan. We go to the kings, like Saul, even Saul, bad king. God still uses him. God speaks through him. Then David, who's a better example, but not perfect, not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story, right? But still uses David, uses Solomon, uses the prophets, uses all the psalmists. Okay, God through his spirit has continued to speak. Now what's changed is rather than people who hold a particular office being the only ones empowered to speak on behalf of God, now it is all people, all flesh, the entire church. Not just the 12 apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, the entire church is filled and empowered to speak. You with me? We go from people who hold specific roles where God uses them and speaks through them to now all people, to now all, not just the elders, the apostles, the pastors, the, the spiritual people, or whatever, now God is enabling all of the church to be his witnesses. And it's going to move from this group of 120 people now outside the building to this crowd that is gathered where people from all nations are, even more fulfilling some of the nuances of Joel, like people from every nation, men and women, Slaves, servants, this, that, the other thing, the poor, the rich, all. So God is fulfilling this, and Peter is reminding them God is doing this. God promised ahead of time. Now, let's read verse 21 again. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not only is it not just Jews, not just men, not just the elite, not just the wealthy, not just the pretty, not just the educated, not just this, not just that, but it's all people. But notice the emphasis. Why is God pouring out his spirit on people? That the people will be saved. 
that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that the gospel would go out through this. This is not some magic trick to wow the people or entertain the people inside the building. It's so that it moves outside the building so that other people can call on the name of Lord Jesus and that they can be saved as well. See, there's always been a purpose. Jesus says, wait until you're filled with the Spirit, with power, and then you'll be my witnesses. Now, Peter's preaching as that is happening, and he said, listen, Joel said this too hundreds of years ago. He said the Spirit is going to be poured out on all people so that everyone can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. We see promise. We see fulfillment. We see the thing that the Holy Spirit does here that is a miraculous thing, an amazing thing, but we see the purpose for it, that the gospel would go out, not to make church more entertaining on a Sunday, that the gospel would go forward, that people would call on the name of Jesus, that they would be saved. All right, verse 22, men of Israel, Peter continues, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, let's just pause, Jesus did all kinds of miraculous things. Everything from raise the dead, to heal the sick, to feed the masses, but Why? Look at what it says. Jesus, a man attested to you by God. How was he validated by God? By signs and wonders that he did in your midst, right? That Jesus did this so that you would know, that you would see that Jesus is from God. That it would testify to who he is so that as he proclaims to be God, which he did, as he proclaims to be Savior, which he did, as he proclaimed to be the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, Messiah or Christ, which he did say, that you would know by what he can do, by God validating him, that you would know that that's true of him. Okay, so here's Peter. He's saying, here's why God uses the miraculous, is to validate, or in this case, to validate Jesus, right? This will go on and happen in Acts. The apostles, we'll look at that next week, will also do that. We'll look at it then, right? But notice what Peter's doing. He's gone from the crowd drawing in over this fascination of, or confusion over what's going on. They have questions. They're amazed. They're perplexed, confused. They're drawing near. But Peter is using this as a moment to proclaim the gospel. He sees the opportunity to be a witness, that he is going outside now, and he's proclaiming the gospel to the crowd Because there's a crowd, he says, I'm going to go tell them about Jesus. Verse 23, and this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Two important things here. All that happened to Jesus was God's plan, making it equally Christ's plan, because Jesus is God who became flesh, the second person of the Trinity, right? The triune God. But also God raised him from the dead. Jesus is alive, right? You hear what he's saying, right? This was God's plan, and then God raised him from the dead. I want you to hear this, though. We're going to see it again in just a minute. It's right there in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God. So we're going along. God had a plan. I want you to see the focus here. You crucified and killed Talk about fire and brimstone. Talk about a preacher getting up there and like making a very focused message, right? This Jesus, you crucified, you can almost see him pointing at people, right? You crucified and killed because he's in Jerusalem with the same religious leadership with many of the same people that shouted for the crucifixion. 
not just the leadership, but the people. Notice how he is proclaiming both the hard truths and the amazing truths. He's not skimping on one or the other. He's sharing the entire truth. Here's your issue. Here's your sin. Here's the problem. Here's why you're separated from God. And here's the solution in Christ. Right? He's not softening this side. In fact, he's, he's hitting it pretty hard. Like this Jesus you killed. God raised from the dead. So you're telling people that believe they're worshiping God that God overcame what they did, meaning God's on the opposite team. You killed him, God raised him from the dead. Do you understand how this gospel, and it's, again, you don't get to lean in so heavy to that message all the time. Right place, right time, Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit with a crowd, with an amazing, miraculous event going on, Peter is leaning into a true gospel. They did kill Jesus. So did we. But they did. It was their hands. He's not letting him off the hook. And to go one step further, God raised him from the dead. In other words, God had to overcome your sin. God had to reverse what you did. You're on the opposite side of where God would have you be. You're actually opposing God. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, but will let your Holy One, or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life, you will make full of gladness with your presence. So Peter quotes the psalmist, he's moved from the prophet Joel, and he's moved to the psalmist King David. Right? So David, who penned many of the Psalms, he is moving to something God wrote through the hands of David. Right? So it's a gospel promise about 1,500 years earlier that God promised to raise Jesus from the dead. So Peter is leaning into God empowered someone to speak to make a promise that God would fulfill here. He's now living it out here. Joel, now he backs up a little bit to King David, right? And now look how he explains it. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, just as a, as a note, if you were Jewish in this day, whether you were born Jewish and followed that, or you were a convert to Judaism, either way, King David is kind of the pinnacle of human beings, right? He was the greatest king Israel ever had. He had epic failures, but he was a good king to the people for the most part. And God made a covenant with him, that after him, someone from his lineage would always be on the throne. Interesting moment. Nobody on the throne at this moment, right? But God had said it will be. He's going to deal with that. But he wrote scripture. He wrote songs and prayers that are sung today. We sing Psalm 8 constantly. He wrote songs, songs and prayers that the Jews here in this era, they sang and prayed. So David was at the top of the food chain. There's Moses at the, as the pinnacle of prophets, and there's David as the pinnacle of kings. And he's saying, listen, here's what David said. God told David he would do this. God, the great, uh, David, the great king of Israel, a prophet, author of scripture, is lower than Jesus, and proclaimed this would happen. Verse 32. Oh, I, I stopped at 29. Let's go back to 30. Therefore, a prophet, being therefore a prophet, meaning David, and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, I just mentioned that, 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. The comparison there, that Jesus is the truer and greater David, but, but also that David proclaimed Jesus would come, that when the Messiah came, he would die, but God would raise him from the dead. He says that's who Jesus is. That's the promise that God made through David. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You see what Peter just said he is? He's the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Peter says, of this resurrection, of this living Jesus, we are witnesses. We saw him. We're telling you. We are being witnesses that Jesus is alive. Let's just push pause for a minute. A lot of people believe in God. A lot of people believe in philosophers. A lot of people believe in a lot of things. If Jesus truly lived, died, and rose from the dead, and he alone can make that claim, and if, if he did so after saying he would do that, and if he truly is God who became human, if he is God who became flesh to reconcile a sinful humanity, us, to a holy God, to be the bridge so that we might not be separated from God forever, should we not tune into who Jesus is? Should we not hear, okay, listen, we don't have to know everything about David, but Jesus is significantly important. Peter, not so much, except for when he speaks about Jesus, right? That they were witnesses to this Jesus. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, meaning Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this, that you yourselves are, look at it, seeing and hearing. Oh, they're seeing this too. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So this church who is filled with this sound, they hear this thing, right? And then these tongues of fire land on this church. There's this visual kind of thing that happens as the Spirit empowers them. And then they're empowered to speak in such a way that the crowds outside who speak all kinds of different languages are hearing and understanding. He says, listen, here's what you're seeing and hearing. Here's not just this group of people who are speaking in a language unknown to them, and we're trying to guess and figure out what they're doing, but you're seeing and hearing God fill his church right now with his own spirit. Of this resurrected Jesus, we are witnesses, and you're witnessing the fulfillment of the promise Jesus made to us, that we would be empowered to be his witnesses. You're seeing it. You're hearing it. You're perceiving that something is happening you're asking questions about it because you're seeing and hearing the Spirit here upon us. I'm not saying those little tongues of fire went outside with them. I'm, not saying they're, I'm saying they're seeing the church for the first time empowered by God's own Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is empowering this little church now to go out to the world around them and proclaim Christ. This has never happened, and it's happening here. And there is a massive audience. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are seeing and hearing this. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He says that God said to Jesus, sit at my right hand, right? But David, he said, David isn't with God like that. And David's the top of the food chain for us, but he's not there. Jesus is. Verse 35, until I make your enemies a footstool, sit here until all things come to be. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you crucified. That's a beast of a message. Again with the you crucified him. Can you imagine hearing this? Like Jesus, God became flesh. He came to us. He came as one of us. In fact, he came as a Jewish man here here in our area, and you killed him. But God would not let that be. He raised him from the dead. That Jesus is now ascended to the Father who is ruling and reigning, alive, physically alive. But you crucified him. You are not on God's team. You're not a good person who's just a little off track. You crucified Jesus. That's what he's saying. But God loves you enough to tell you. Can you hear in this, no matter what your sin is, no matter what you do, God loves you enough to say, listen, this is where you're off track. If you kill Jesus and can be forgiven, for sure you can do whatever else. But he's saying God raised Jesus from the dead to overcome what you have done, to forgive what you've done, to give new life to you no matter what you've done. God has made him Lord and Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which really means the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. That God has fulfilled all those promises of our salvation and redemption in a man, Jesus Christ, who is both God and human, who is now Lord, alive, reigning in heaven. Verse 37, now when they heard, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You hear that? They, they're convicted and they're changed. See, this isn't a human message. You can say, you crucified him and God raised him from the dead and they're like, nah. They're listening and they're knowing because the Holy Spirit is speaking, not Peter. Because The Holy Spirit has empowered Peter to speak in such a way that they will understand it. Wait a minute. That's what just happened in the church. The Holy Spirit empowered the church, 120 people, to speak in such a way that the crowds would understand it. That's what Peter's doing, too. He is speaking, empowered by the Spirit, in such a way that the crowds can understand, be convicted, be changed, be converted to Christ. They're convicted. They're changed. That is the Spirit speaking through Peter. No matter what language it's in, no matter if it's in Peter's birth language or one he doesn't know, the Holy Spirit empowers speech so that others might hear the good news of the gospel. Verse 38, they ask, okay, what do we do? Like, clearly we're wrong. I mean, you can understand the people that shouted for his death are now saying, We've, we've blown it in like the biggest of ways. Like, how do we overcome this? What do we do? Peter, what do we do? Like, not long ago, Peter was just some knucklehead who used to be a fisherman, was following around this poor kind of itinerant preacher that they were going to kill, and they chased him off back to his old vocation. Now they're looking at him like, we're on the other side of God. Like, God's not pleased with who we are. What do we do? What must we do to be saved, they understand their predicament. Listen to his answer, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repent. 
turn from sin. Now that you believe, your call is to turn from sin. No matter what it is, no matter what you're called to, you're called to turn from sin and be baptized. You are to be baptized into a small, commu- a, a, a local community called the church. That you're, you're, you're to go from outsider to insider, right? That you turn from the things that keep you from Jesus because Jesus, by the Spirit, has awakened your heart to see that and empowered you to turn, has given you spiritual life. And so you turn, and then you join a local church, be baptized. You get baptized into a local church that you can grow and mature. And he said, that's true for you if you're hearing us now. That's true for your children when they grow up. That's true for outsiders when they come, for foreigners, for other people. It's true for everyone. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll be empowered to join the journey, to join the mission, to be a part of the church, that the Spirit will empower you as well. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that about 3,000 souls. Right out the gate, the Holy Spirit empowers Peter, who's been less than consistent in his three years with Jesus. He's had flaws and, and successes, and honestly, he's human. That's what makes him so readable, is he's normal. But he's used in a very abnormal or supernatural way. This Peter, empowered by the Spirit, preaches the first gospel in the Christian church, and thousands come to faith. And it is not a nice gospel. He doesn't promise them heaven. He doesn't promise that they'll be healthy and wealthy and happy and joyful. He says, listen, you're on the other side of God. You crucified Jesus. God raised him from the dead. He doesn't even really invite them into anything until they ask. That's not a gospel to go well today, right? But it's the true gospel. That, hey, you're on the other side of God right now. See, that message could be said here in America, right? Hey, I understand you think you're following God, but it doesn't look anything like Scripture. You profess to be this, but you're on the other side. What do we do? We repent. We get baptized. That's the baptism is the sacrament, the entrance into a local church where you'll invest your life with others and, and share yourself and grow and mature and hear the word preached and sing songs that worship and glorify God and, and celebrate the sacrament of communion. Learn repentance. Learn God's instruction. You'll, you'll do all that inside the local body. That's why it's repent and be baptized. It's, it's turn from your sin and join the community of faith. The empowering of the Holy Spirit, if you want to understand the work of the Holy Spirit, when you look at something, you're like, well, this happens, and we see this in that church over there. We see this on TV. We hear about this, or I've heard about this. I want you to look for the greatest miracle that takes place in the passage. And the greatest miracle is not some people speak like this and some people hear them. The greatest miracle is the people that killed Jesus turn and want to follow Jesus after a very pointed gospel message that thousands turn and want to change their lives. That's the greater miracle. The other thing looks flashy. Great. But this is eternal. See, in heaven, there will be one language. See, the curse of Babylon 
where humanity was scattered in language, is reconciled in Christ. You see, language is temporal. Eternity is forever. Salvation is eternal. The greater miracle is the conversion of the people who shouted for Christ's death. The Holy Holy Spirit empowers the church to speak in such a way that others can understand them. That's the point. Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaches in such a way that those who were the most hostile to Jesus changed, fulfilling the beginning of the Great Commission. So what do we do with this? What application can you make? What is something you can take away from this and apply to your life this week? I was thinking, okay, what what do I want to do with this? And, And here's my challenge for me. Every week, I'm, I'm more prayerful about my Sunday message than I am about other things, right? I'm more prayerful about this than when I get together with Chris on Wednesday nights. Or when I, when I meet with somebody or do something, when somebody's coming in for counsel or for something, or I get asked a question or something happens, I, I'm, I'm more prayerful about Sundays than I am about that. And I want to be equally prayerful because my answers don't fix anything. But the Spirit changes lives whether that's on a a private meeting nobody ever hears about, or if it's me sharing the gospel with someone I love, or it's a Sunday morning message. I want to be more prayerful about every conversation, every moment I can have where I can share Christ with someone else. I want to treat them all as they have internal implication and that I'm not equipped for the job. If you're a mature believer, are you consistently growing in your education and your faith while remaining reliant on the Holy Spirit and prayer for the gospel speech that you, for the gospel presentation that you make, for the gospel message you share with one another? Are you growing? Are you praying? Are you remaining reliant on the Spirit? Are you trusting in yourself and your maturity and your faith? If you're new to the faith, you've been empowered by God's Holy Spirit to speak to others about the gospel, even if you don't know everything. No, none of us know everything. None of us have all the answers. Be humble enough to say, I don't know but God has empowered you to speak. If you're not a believer yet, the gospel is all about a living Jesus, not a dead Jewish guy. About a living Jesus who came to reconcile us to God and transform those who follow him. Empowering us for change and and calling us through repentance and baptism into a local community to grow and glorify Jesus. If you've not heard that gospel before, know that there's a God who loves you enough to both call out the issue and provide the solution. Parents who have kids, do you pray for the Spirit to empower your speech to your kids that they may one day follow Jesus? Or do you just assume because we're raising them in a church or even a Christian school or a homeschool that your words are enough? Do you pray for your conversations about the gospel until your children meet and come to Christ for themselves? Let's take some time. You've got two, three, four minutes to turn into some small groups. The parents, this is where you get to ask your kids some questions about the message. Kids, this is where you get to ask questions about today's message. What is your takeaway? What's one thing you heard you want to apply to your life this week?